There have been many harrowing stories about the events in Washington in recent days, but none have been more gut-wrenching than that of Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland. On New Year's Eve, Raskin learned that his son Tommy, an accomplished Harvard Law School student, a poet, and an animal rights activist, had taken his own life, a victim of excruciating depression. But even while grieving, Raskin, a constitutional law professor and a member of the House Judiciary Committee, was determined to do his duty to uphold American democracy. So, on January 6th, as Congress assembled to certify the results of the November election, he showed up in the Capitol to vote and speak. And, wanting to stay close to his family, invited one of his daughters and a son-in-law to come with him. And then the attack from the mob, riled up by the President of the United States, began. Raskin and his family were separated. His daughter and son-in-law barricaded into a room where the rioters banged on the door, trying to break in. Like many of his colleagues, Raskin was shell-shocked. Still, he managed to help draft two resolutions that passed the House this past week, one calling on Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove President Trump from office, the other to impeach the president for violating his oath of office. When the Senate puts the soon-to-be ex-president on trial, it will be Raskin, at the request of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who will be leading the prosecution. We'll talk to Raskin on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, the news about Jamie Raskin's son uh, was so painful to read, and the tribute he wrote to him was so moving. So many people were moved to tears about that experience. But his, his determination to uphold the rule of law in this country, the Constitution, and American democracy itself was so strong that he got through the grieving that well, he'll never be through with the grieving, of course, but you know, he buried his son and then he stood up for all of us to uphold the constitutional right for the people of the United States to choose their own president. Um, it's in many ways a, a pretty heroic story. Both of us have known uh, Jamie Raskin for a long time. I I went to school with him. Uh, My sister was friends with him in high school. So I've known him, you know, since he was a teenager. We don't know Tommy, but we know him from that incredibly moving tribute that he and his, uh, uh, that Jamie Raskin and his wife wrote. And it tells us something about how Jamie Raskin has handled this really terrible tragedy, which is, 
you can't transcend it through work, but in some ways you can pay tribute to the values that Tommy Raskin, um, you know, reflected by doing the kind of work that Jamie Raskin is doing, you, you know, no less than doing the work to save the republic and doing your constitutional duty in, in a time of great crisis. You know, it must be some kind of catharsis for Jamie Raskin to be able to throw himself into um, important work, good work at a time like this. But at the end of the day, as you say, he will be grieving for a long time. And it's terribly, terribly sad. Yeah, terribly sad. But, you know, I think when we uh, when, when the Senate trial begins and we really don't know when that's going to happen, it doesn't look like uh, it'll start till uh, next week after the president leaves office. Uh, we will all be watching Jamie Raskin as the lead House House manager bringing the case against Donald Trump. So let's talk to him. We now have with us Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, a longtime skullduggery guest and now the lead manager for the prosecution team in the case of the impeachment of Donald Trump. And Congressman, I wanted to start out by uh, offering our uh, heartfelt condolences over Tommy. I didn't know Tommy, as I told you on the phone, but I've had friends who did and talked about what an inspiring young man he was and uh, his passion and his uh, activism uh, really came through in that moving piece that you wrote about him. So I want to. Well, I, I appreciate that, Michael. Um, we are continuing to uh, grieve over not being with Tommy, and uh, it's still a time of great uh, heartbreak in our family. But the world has, the whole world really has discovered what a remarkable young man he was with his passions and his causes and his commitments. And he was a great champion of human rights, a great champion of animal rights and welfare, an advocate for addressing the needs of the desperately poor and the hungry. And uh, he was all at the same time an utterly delightful and magical presence who brought so much joy into um, people's hearts. And we're, we, you know, we've been overwhelmed by communications from around the world, but all of Tommy's friends from Blair High School and from Eastern Middle School and from Amherst College and Harvard Law School, the most touching, unbelievable thing is to see all of the stuff they're doing in his name. You know, I just had a call with some of his friends from Harvard Law School, and they're um, working to endow a, uh, a paper prize in his name about animal rights and animal welfare. And they're having a boggle night because he was a boggle fanatic who taught everybody how to play and always got them together to do it, even though uh, nobody could come near him. He was an absolute boggle genius the way he put those words together. And he was a great lover of the English language. And um, he was a poet in addition to all that. And um, he's maybe the only person on earth who could convert people to stop eating meat just by reciting poetry he wrote. Uh, in answer to the question of why are you a vegan? So um, he's a remarkable presence. We tried to just give the world a glimpse into uh, the dazzling person he was with, I think, just two or three pages about him. But a lot of people are discovering his writings online 
and uh, some of his um, spoken word performances and some of his debates and stuff like that. And uh, we're, we're, gonna, we're in the process of compiling it to try to release it more formally. And we'd actually like, to, I think, to come back to some of these stories toward the end of this podcast. But for those of you who have not had a chance to read it, the tribute that uh, Congressman Raskin and his wife, Sarah Bloom Raskin, wrote on uh, Medium is unbelievably moving and uh, will give everybody a real sense of what Tommy was like. So I would encourage people to read it. It's on Medium. Congressman, I'd like to sort of start out with the events of January 6th. Because having just gone through this horrible tragedy, you were determined to do your duty as a member of Congress and certify the uh, Electoral College results. But you wanted to stay close to your family and you, you brought two members of your family. So take us through the events of that day for you. Well, um, Speaker Pelosi had asked me to be one of the... Um, Democratic managers of responding to these utterly outrageous and absurd claims that the election results were invalid from Arizona, from Pennsylvania, from a number of other states they were planning to challenge. Uh, so I'd been preparing for that for several weeks. We had a burial ceremony for Tommy on that Tuesday at the Gardens of Remembrance um, in Maryland. And, um, and uh, so that was Tuesday and Wednesday was, was the day of, that we were going to count the Electoral College votes under the Electoral Count Act and Wednesday, January 6th. And Tabitha said, Daddy, don't go. I want you to stay home because, we, you know, we had all been together, you know, for the prior six days. Um, and um, I said, I've got to go. I mean, I, you know, I said, <laughs> I swore a constitutional oath to go. I got to do this. And I told uh, as Speaker Pelosi, I did. I said, well, why don't you just come with me? You can come. And I uh, invited her boyfriend. But um, they decided Hannah would stay back, but her husband would come. So I had my son-in-law and I had my daughter. And, uh, you know, we wanted to be together and I wanted to be close to her and she wanted to be close to me. So um, we had a, a room that was off of the house floor where they were. And then they came to the House floor basically when I was making my presentation about the nature of our constitutional role. We weren't there to vote for the person we wanted most wanted to be president. We were there simply to count the votes. When you look at the Constitution, we were just literally there to count the votes. It is a pro forma ministerial task. And the fact that the president and his team ginned up this huge mob and protest was absolutely outside of uh, all of the standards of American history. And uh, of course, the violent mob insurrection that was incited, of course, was uh, a lethal threat to the future of our republic. So I, after I spoke, Tabitha and my son-in-law, Hank, went back to that room. And at this point, we're getting a lot of texts and emails saying, are you guys okay? Are you okay? And we had no reason to think anything was wrong until minutes later, after they had left the gallery to go back, we began to hear a terrible ruckus. And then it sounded like battering rams at the door. Like it sounded basically like an army trying to break in the door. So a bunch of people pushed some furniture up against the door and we tried to hold that. And then suddenly the Capitol officers came in with guns drawn. The chaplain of the house conducted a prayer 
and it was a terrifying and prayerful moment for people. Then several people got up and explained how to put a gas mask on. There were gas masks available just in the room, which I, I was not aware of, but people were confused about how to put them on. It was a time of tremendous panic. You could hear people shouting and yelling. You could hear hang Mike Pence. You could hear people screaming, where's Nancy? You could hear people basically trying to barrel down the doors. And then they told us we were going to be shepherded out. And of course, I had just been trying to call Tabitha and Hank and my chief of staff, Julie Tagan, to see if they were okay. We were all evacuated. And, uh, and that was a very scary scene, let me tell you. And as we were evacuated out, you could see different things going on. Uh, it was complete mayhem. It was nightmarish. People were crying. There were people who you know, had different kinds of disabilities who were having a hard time uh, getting out. And um, finally, uh, about maybe 30 to 45 minutes later, we were escorted to safety to one of the committee rooms. I had been able to make contact on the way with my daughter, my son-in-law, my chief of staff, and you know, I told them exactly what the officers were telling them, which is, you lock that door, you barricade everything you can find up against that door, and you hide. And Tabitha and Hank were hiding under a desk, just terrified. Uh, my chief of staff, to whom I entrusted my daughter's life, went to the fireplace in the room and took out a fire pick. And she said she got her filly on. She was born in Philadelphia. And she said she was ready to fight because, you know, they could hear what was happening outside and people were trying to bang on the door and to, to get in. Finally, they were able to secure that part of the Capitol and the House chamber after one of the rioter insurrectionists was shot. And that is, I think, what forced the mob back from not getting into the House floor, and I think that the officers were able to get them out of the way. That's my best understanding of it, but I, I don't state that as fact. And then finally, they were able to get them out of that room, and we were reunited basically after an hour, an hour, 20 minutes, something like that, and we were together. You know. Tell us about your emotions when you were reunited with Tabitha and, and Hank. How did you? Uh, I mean, it was, I mean, it's, it's indescribable. I was extremely relieved. I was very grateful to our noble police officers who were being beaten, spat upon, stabbed with flagpoles, pushed around with, you know, metal pipes. I mean, you name it, they had every manner of uh, weapon there. And remember, hundreds, maybe thousands of people entered the U.S. Capitol without going through a metal detector or any security screening at all. Uh, Lindsey Graham said afterwards, and this is, you know, Lindsey Graham is about Donald Trump's last defender, but he said, they could have had a bomb. We all could have been killed. They were chanting repeatedly, not like one random chant, but they were chanting repeatedly, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. You could hear that. And they were asking, where's Nancy Pelosi? They wanted to assassinate her. So all of us could have been lined up against the wall. Really, all of us could have died at the hands of that violent insurrectionist white supremacist mob. They were at war with the American Republic. And they continue to be at war with the American Republic and say uh, they want people to come to Washington to uh, interrupt the inauguration and to, to block the final transfer of power over to uh, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris. Were you aware of what President Trump had said during the rally while this was going on? No. Um, 
I mean, of course, I had been aware and um, generally fearful of what was going on from months of agitation against the election, saying we will never give in, we will never concede. I think I had seen the quote during the day, fight like hell. I just had no idea that the Capitol could actually be overrun like that. It generally feels like a safe place. It doesn't feel like a safe place anymore. And I, I got to tell you, when I finally sent uh, Tabitha and Hank back home to be with the rest of my family, and a lot of family was here for um, Tommy's funeral, I said, Tabitha, I promise you will never be like this in the Capitol again. And she goes, there's not going to be another time, Dad. Like, she will never come back again. And, um, um, you know, these people have... Um, ruin something that is uh, sacred in our republic. And they have uh, brought absolute poison and chaos to the heart of capital. And we've got to restore democracy and the rule of law. And we've got to make it clear that we are going to fight for our democracy. So the decision to move towards impeachment, just tell us, you know, when that crystallized and the very critical role which you played in drafting those two resolutions, both for 25th Amendment, which, you know, I, you were talking about three years ago, four yes. years ago almost, and then impeachment as well. Well, you know, when, when Donald Trump was inaugurated and talked about American carnage, I suppose you could have a glimpse of where everything was going. And uh, I always felt that we needed to honor the promise in the 25th Amendment that there would be a body set up by Congress that would be there in the event of a presidential incapacity. One of the things I've learned about politics is it's very hard to get people to focus on something before there's a real problem or an emergency. You know, people don't want to just adopt general policy solutions in the abstract. That's one of the problems we have in public health, especially with somebody like President Trump. I mean, you know, the idea that he would actually disband the pandemic response group in the National Security Council seems just outrageous. But for him, well, we weren't in the middle of a pandemic then, so why do you need a pandemic response group? You just get rid of it. Um, that's irresponsible. That's why, as the founder said, you need the wisest people in public office, not the most foolish, foolish and short-sighted and impetuous. But as to the impeachment question, I don't think there was any doubt in anyone's mind, certainly not on my side of the aisle, and I think a lot of Republicans, he had to go. I mean, leaving aside the months of agitation and the days and hours of incitement leading up to the violent insurrection, he did nothing to help us. He was getting panicked, desperate calls from Republicans and Democrats to save us. And he was doing nothing other than watching it on TV. And he and his team continued to make phone calls to senators and representatives to keep the challenge to the Electoral College vote going. He coordinated the illegal violent incitement on the outside with the parliamentary strategy on the inside to delay the counting of Electoral College votes. And so it was an absolute assault on the republic. He's a clear and present danger to us all. And he shouldn't stay in office for another day. And I, you know, we don't even need, uh, under the 25th Amendment, to analyze what precise kind of impairment he's operating under, uh, under, but he did not and cannot live up to the most minimal basic duties of the office. 
to defend the republic, to defend the people against enemies foreign and domestic. He basically threw open the doors and all the windows and, you know, invited, or as uh, Congresswoman Cheney put it, he summoned the mob, he assembled the mob, and he lit the match that led to that conflagration. And she said, all of it can be laid at his feet. None of this would have happened without Donald Trump. So I think for anybody who lived through that nightmare, there was no alternative unless somehow you felt some sympathy for what he was doing. So just back to Mike's, uh, the specific part of Mike's question, when that kind of moment crystallized, when, you know, you and, and your Democratic colleagues started talking about it, and, and presumably you began to hear Republicans talk about it as, as well. So describe that. Well, I think everyone was traumatized uh, that day, that night, the next day we began to recover, and then we began to get the reports how much worse it was than what we thought. I mean, on the inside, you could imagine that it was a couple of hundred people. It was tens of thousand people who were amassed outside of the Congress who were up against that beleaguered and overrun police force, and they were willing to kill people. Five people died. Uh, we saw those scenes of absolute agony of police officers being caught in the crush and the crowd mercilessly setting upon them. And um, also, uh, lots of people have, you know, quickly began to put together the timeline of the president's actions. And that's, uh, you know, we're still in the process of putting all of that together. And that will be a lot of what takes place at the trial to convict President Trump on the criminal charges that have been brought by the House of Representatives. Um, you know, the impeachment is an indictment, and it is an indictment for his role in inciting this violent insurrection against the United States and our form of government. Now, you actually wrote this indictment. I helped. I helped. There were a number of people, Congressman Cicilline, Congressman Neguse, my, my dear colleagues from the Judiciary Committee, actually took more of the lead on it because I was working also on the uh, 25th Amendment resolution, imploring Vice President Pence immediately to convene the cabinet to transfer the powers of uh, a clearly uh, incapable president to the vice president. So, but I was working with them also on the article of impeachment. But we, we you know, we were working, we were working together, and we were working to secure the republic. So you, we had the the debate and vote this week. Liz Cheney, who you just quoted, was uh, was quite a surprise to a lot of us. You got ten Republicans. Were you? Hoping for more? Were you expecting more? What did you make of the Republican votes and well, look, what you heard on the floor with this. the uh, other day? Donald Trump is the first president in history to be impeached twice. Also, that was um, the most uh, significant bipartisan majority on behalf of an impeachment in American history. Nothing has really come close to it. The statements that were made and released by the Republican members were impressive as hell. And I keep quoting Liz Cheney, not only because she is the elected chair of the Republican conference who felt that her oath of office compelled her to vote to impeach, but also because she did the single best job of synthesizing what happened. He summoned the mob, he assembled the mob, he lit the match by exhorting the mob and inciting the mob. And that there is, you know, there may have been other people contributed, but clearly he was the lead actor 
in making all of these events happen. And you know what? If it had succeeded, does anybody believe that he would have proceeded to try to put down this insurrection and prosecute the people who brought it? Or do we think that he actually would have just continued on his merry way to be president of the United States for at least another term? What if the people they were trying to kill were killed? What would have happened? Congressman, you you said something uh, that I just want you to elaborate on in in terms of the stakes. You said we were working to secure the republic. It's a simple declaration, but what what did you mean? I I mean, I was in the House of Representatives, maybe 75 or 100 feet away from the vice president of the United States, who was operating there as Senate president to count the Electoral College votes. Everything in the president's plan was to converge on this moment to stop the counting of electoral college votes. And we had a mob of thousands of people inside and outside the building yelling, hang Mike Pence. They set up a gallows outside at the Capitol. They were looking to find Nancy Pelosi and assassinate her. The three people next in the line of succession would have been killed. And, you know, everybody still wants to believe in American exceptionalism. And somehow we're different. What's different is that we still have the spirit to fight to defend our democracy, which a lot of people have given up. But all of the right-wing extremism and coup-like behavior that you see in other parts of the world happened here. It happened here. And so we could have lost our republic on that day, right before our very eyes. And to this day, you know, we've... um, We are reading about all of the the threats being made in right-wing media to um, finish their coup on January 17th, 18th, 19th, and uh, 20th. Like, we are in the middle of um, the democracy still being besieged by these people, and they're talking about doing it at all of the state capitals, too. So now is the time for all patriots to come to mobilize to defend our country. Everybody's got a chance to act in the spirit of Abraham Lincoln right now in terms of what you say, in terms of what you do. Congressman, you're a constitutional law professor, and I think it's uh, fair to say a man of the left. Your father was uh, active and very prominent in the anti-war movement during the 1960s and 70s. And, you know, the charges against the president, incitement to violence and the rhetoric about sedition, this is what's traditionally been used against the left. I noted on the podcast the other day, I recently watched the uh, the new movie, The Trial of the Chicago 7. They were charged with sedition. They were charged with inciting violence. The Supreme Court has a very high bar for the charge of incitement to violence. There has to be a direct link between the words used and the actual acts and, uh, of violence. And, and imminence, I think, is In, part Im- of that Imminence standard. is the test. I mean, are you at all worried or how would you respond to those who say that to use these tools that have been, you know, used to suppress protests from the left now against President Trump could set a very dangerous precedent? Well, um, unfortunately, I think you're mixing apples and oranges here. The Brandenburg standard is the First Amendment standard that applies to private citizens and how they operate. And incitement, even for private citizens, 
is not protected under the First Amendment. Incitement to imminent lawless action is not protected speech. But here we're not even talking about a criminal prosecution. In an impeachment, nobody goes to jail for a single day. The question is, what are the standards of conduct expected of the president of the United States? I mean, take a president who doesn't even do what the president did, which was to create a course of conduct, speech and action leading up to a violent insurrection. But just say you had a president who spent every day going around the country saying, we need to destroy constitutional government and install fascism in America, right? Well, would you consider that impeachable conduct if the president was just going and just, just advocating it without actually getting involved with the actors who were going to do it, but just advocating it? I would, I would think that that would be a pretty strong case for impeachment. But in this case, Well, no, no, I, I, I totally agree with yeah. you there. But would you agree that the incitement charge should not be used in a criminal prosecution against Donald Trump after he leaves? No, office? I wouldn't concede that because I think that that even on a criminal prosecution, which, which this is not, there would be a very good case to be made that this was criminal incitement and it survived. In any event, it's irrelevant. It's an irrelevant distraction from what we're doing here, which is we're talking about the standards of conduct, high crimes and misdemeanors against the republic. Imagine any other president in history, from George Washington to Abraham Lincoln to Ulysses Grant, to Teddy Roosevelt, to Franklin Roosevelt, to George W. Bush. Do you think any of them would have been engaged in this course of conduct that would lead to a violent insurrection not. in the Capitol? Well, oh, the, that's not. what we're saying. This is a high crime and misdemeanor, a violent attack against the republic. I just want to ask about, is there legal or constitutional relevance to, to the president's conduct, not just before this riot, but at, but during and after. He comes out with Absolutely. a video. He says he loves these yes. people. All of that will come out in the trial. The, you know. And when, we're, when will we have a trial? Uh, I have no idea when it's going to be set. That is above my pay grade. But, but I will tell you that all of the president's actions before the violent insurrection, during the violent insurrection, and after the violent insurrection are consistent with his consciousness of guilt and um, his working to incite an insurrection against the public and against the Republican, against the people. What do you say to those who are very concerned that a trial of Donald Trump, which now looks that it won't take place until after he leaves office on Wednesday, is going to really delay the confirmation of Biden appointees getting Biden people into key positions in the government and also dealing with really pressing national issues like the raging pandemic? Um, well, the first thing I would say is we should have uh, the resources within the Senate and the House, and we do have the resources in the Senate and House to do all of this. And, um, you know, the Senate, of course, has been gone for many days, but they obviously made the judgment that they would be able to do both. And I, I fully expect that they will, and uh, we will adjust to their schedule. You know, in a in a more thematic way, I would say this, uh, go and read the preamble of the Constitution, right? It's, we the people, in order to form more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense. Those three come before promote the general welfare. So we got to promote the general welfare at the same time. We're establishing justice, ensuring domestic tranquility, and providing for the common defense, and we can do them all. But those values are all on the same plane. 
You know, another concern that's been raised by some constitutional scholars, uh, former appellate court judge Michael Ludig, most prominently, that it is not constitutional to try a president after he leaves office, that the impeachment clause implies that both removal and disqualification go together and you can't separate them. Well, then why would it be spelled out that way? Conviction, removal, and disqualification are all put in there. The Supreme Court has never said anything like that. I think Judge Ludig um, conceded that uh, Professor Tribe had the stronger argument when he refuted him immediately after that speculation. But look, we've got a, we've got a positive case to rely, this, uh, to rely on, which is the Belknap decision from 1876. Belknap was a corrupt secretary of war perhaps not as corrupt as Donald Trump, but he was pretty corrupt. And he actually did do some good things for the country, but he was ripping off the government. And when the whistle was blown on him and everybody saw exactly what was happening, he rushed over to Ulysses Grant's office in the Oval Office to resign. And he did resign. The fact that he resigned did not stop either, one, the House from impeaching him, or two, the Senate from saying that they could, in fact, conduct a trial, and they did. They exercised jurisdiction over him. So the Senate, you know, already dealt with this issue uh, a century and a half ago. Well, Congressman, there, there is no precedent for the actual situation we will likely find ourselves in, which is an ex-president, no direct precedent, an ex-president being on trial in the Senate. I imagine that if this were to go to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court probably would not want to get involved, but we'll we'll find out. But I have a question for the impeachment nerds about what this Senate trial would look like. And one question that comes to mind is, who would actually preside over it? Because in the past, when presidents have been on trial, the Supreme Court chief justice has presided, Chief Justice John Roberts, just uh, just last year. What do you think would happen this time around with an ex-president on trial? Well, um, thank you for that question, Danny. First, let me underscore the general point here. I remember back in high school, there was something called Senior Skip Day. And it was usually maybe a week or two before school was over. But the idea was basically, it was so late in the day, there was nothing they could do to you. And if everybody just blew it off together, there was no discipline. I don't think we can turn coups and insurrections against the U.S. government into a kind of senior skip day for the president. If he gets away with it, he gets to become dictator. And if he doesn't, we say it was too late in the day to do anything. So we will work out all of those questions that you're raising, where there's there's a will, there's a way under the Constitution. And we owe this to future generations. I don't think the message can be sent to future presidents that if they really don't want to leave their office, give it a try within the next, you know, within a couple of weeks of leaving office and there's nothing that can be done to you. So two quick questions. First of all, what can you tell us about what this trial is going to look like? Are you going to call witnesses? Are you going to show videotapes? What sort of case do you expect to put on? Well, Michael, as a superb reporter, you are expected to ask questions like that. But, uh, you know, I'm trying to uh, run a magnificent uh, trial team here for perhaps the most important uh, impeachment trial in U.S. history. And we are not going to preview any trial tactics or trial strategy other than to say we are not going to test anybody's patience. This is not going to be you know, an affair that goes on for a long, long time. We are going to try to tell a very cogent story about how this president mobilized all of his resources in his office, 
to undermine and to thwart and to nullify this election. And he, as uh, Liz Cheney said, he convoked the mob, he assembled the mob, he lit the match, and no one is more responsible than him. None of this would have happened without Donald Trump. And I think that we will end up with tremendous bipartisan convergence around that factual conclusion, and it will lead irresistibly to a finding of guilty. Can an ex-president be compelled to be present at his own impeachment trial? Again, I'm going to defer any questions of trial procedure and evidence. I was going to say, can you do it in a day? Is it a week? Is it more than that? Well, no, what do you but we're talking about a period of time within which this uh, plan developed and executed and was realized. And um, we want people to see every dimension of this plan. And uh, we think we can do it completely on the public record and what has surfaced um, since this nightmare befell the republic. So I just in terms of how long, I mean, do you think it's a one day, a couple days or more than that? You know, it's up to our friends in the U.S. Senate because it's not up to us and we'll be in consultation with them and we will explain exactly what our case in chief is all about. They, of course, want to do questions and answers. There's opportunity to have summations and uh, opening statements. But, you know, nothing could be more important than us getting this right so we can define exactly what took place and we can secure the republic. We want to make sure that never happens to the people of the United States again. Last question. If you can't get 17 Republican senators to go along, inevitably, the comeback will be this is another failed impeachment and Donald Trump was acquitted. You're running a risk here that that could be the spin that many people put on this if you don't secure a conviction. With all due respect, I disagree completely with what you just said. First of all, there's been no failed impeachment. There was a successful impeachment in the House of Representatives a year ago. There was a successful impeachment last Wednesday. The president has already been impeached by a majority of the House of Representatives, and that is indicted by the House. These are charging documents that we send over. The trial takes place uh, in the Senate. We are not looking for 17 Republic senators. We are looking for 100 senators to do their job as honest, disinterested, impartial jurors, not as members of political parties, not as politicians, but as jurors to hear the facts and the law of this case. And if we do our job correctly, we should have, I think we really could have a unanimous verdict that the president of the United States, as Congresswoman Cheney, the elected chair of the House Republican Conference, said, this president committed the greatest offense against the United States and the Republic history. And I think we are going to be able to prove that, but I got to get back to work right now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank, thank you very thank much you, for joining us.